Hi everyone and welcome to Riskologists. This podcast is brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Pat Bradshaw. Optimize are thrilled to host this podcast series where we'll be speaking with some of risk management's most respected and esteemed thought leaders from across the UK and beyond. Throughout this series, we'll be exploring our guests' journey within risk management, as well as delving into their unique insights and invaluable first-hand experiences around some of the industry's most pressing topics. Our goal? To create a platform in which ideas and thoughts can be shared in order to inspire and educate our audience and to ultimately give back to the risk management community across the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Riskologists. As always, I'm your host Pat Bradshaw and today joined by a really special guest, someone in my early tenure of risk management. I've spent plenty of time um, absorbing the information from her webinars and um, and her other really useful content and that's Sarah Gordon. Sarah, thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having having me on, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. The pleasure's all ours. Pleasure's all ours. So I think a logical place um, to start, Sarah, where I always start with these things, just to give a little bit of context for everyone, is a little bit of um, a little bit of a journey to date, really, a bit of timeline of your career. So how you, I guess, got into risk management um, or fell into it, as I always say, people often do, and then sort of your career up to this very point and, and your current role at the moment and, and what that encompasses. So, so yeah, fire away. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Patrick. So um, originally, I'm a geologist. Um, so if people think that risk management is boring, trust me, I can make this podcast even more dull. Um, and therefore talk about rocks. Um, well, dull to some people, obviously not dull to people who enjoy understanding the, the earth beneath our feet, etc. So I'm originally a geologist. Um, and I actually started out by working in um, a big mining company. So as an exploration geologist flying around in helicopters, going to try and find all the those minerals and metals that we need in order to create things like wind turbines, batteries, crockery, cars, mobile phones, etc. I find that stuff fascinating. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, well, I'm we, not even joking, I do. <laughs> well, we can derail the podcast right now and we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, but it was it was during that time and actually I was working um, on, on a big mine site in Brazil. Um, and during that time, I found that, OK, so we were doing some really excellent work on the ground, both on the geological side and also with regards to sustainability. So including the social context, environmental context, health and safety, et cetera, um, and pulling all of that together and saying, OK, well, well what does this actually mean for the organization? What are we trying to do as a company? Yeah. Um, and what we found was that um, all of the all of the fantastic people on site were brilliant. Um, and then all of the bankers and lawyers, et cetera, in London were fantastic as well. But did they understand what one another were talking about? Um, not so much. And so what we started to do was very, very organically, I guess, use forms of risk management to actually try and say, right, what's the context in which we're operating and what are we trying to achieve? OK, what are the different uncertainties or the potential opportunities and threats? What can we actually do about some of these? And so therefore, can we actually achieve these objectives? And so we use that very naturally to actually, if nothing else, act as a translation and a communication tool between these different groups of people that otherwise were just completely missing one another culturally with regards to language and also background specialization um and i later learned that that methodology was actually called risk management who knew um (laughs) 
then so then I went and did my homework um, and I went and did various qualifications with a, a number of different organizations um, and then begin to began to think okay well actually by using integrated risk management or enterprise risk management and pulling together all of these different disparate disciplines or stakeholders, that really is the engine behind ensuring that an organization, no matter what it is, okay, it could be a, a government department all the way through to a tech startup, that's how you ensure that that organization is resilient and can take advantage of how the world is being dynamic and any potential future changes. So, well, that then sparked myself together with two other fantastic people. Back in 2014, we set up our own risk management consultancy called Satala. Um, and so that just comes from myself, Sarah, Tankiso and Laura. So that's a, a really delightful story behind the name. Um, and the purpose of Satala was to make enterprise risk management real and practical. So rather than being this tick box approach, which organizations so often use, it was how do we actively drive decision making and action at all levels in an organization? But also, and this was the sneaky bit, all of us had come from a sustainability background. And whilst we'd worked inside big organizations where sustainability was taken very seriously, you very rarely saw it coming into the ultimate decision-making with regards to the direction of the business or a big divestment or acquisition, things like that. Yeah. And so the real purpose of this was to use enterprise risk management almost as the Trojan horse to then get sustainability properly into decision making and so that was seven years ago and of course what have we seen more recently we've seen a little bit of a flip with regards to that so now the entire world is talking about climate change and sustainability and esg or environment social governance and so everyone's now talking about that but very few people have any idea of how to actually make it a reality and of course yeah. one of the reasons is is enterprise risk management so that's kind of the journey with regards to where I've come from so somebody who enjoys looking at rocks enjoys looking at both the, the technical or the scientific and engineering part of the world but also the human part of the world as well mashing it all together and yeah. say right how can we add a little bit of logic a little bit of order around this to help us make those decisions and so therefore manage that uncertainty no, that's 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 amazing, Sarah. I mean, um, I, I always, to be honest with you, a lot of the time, these, these are sort of my favourite parts of the podcast, hearing people's backgrounds, because, um, like I say, so so often it's so so convoluted, um, sort of how people <laughs> get into risk management. I hope you don't mind me asking, at what point in your career what, did you sort of discover this thing called risk management? Had you been sort of working as a as a geologist for for a number of years, or was it quite was it quite early on? Yeah, no, so I've been, I've been working as a geologist and I'd also, by that point, um, I'd, I'd done my PhD, which um, my PhD is actually in geology rather than risk management. Yeah. And quite, people quite often they say, how on earth, you know, why did you go from geology to risk management? That's really strange. But geology is all about uncertainty. OK, if a geologist says, oh, we're standing on top of the world's biggest gold mine. OK, that, that's just a guess. <laughs> they don't yeah. really know <laughs> that there's lots of gold under the ground. They're just looking at lots of 
leading indicators effectively to say, okay, so given all of these bits of data that we're looking at, this is suggesting to us that we might be standing on top of what could one day become a very large gold mine or rare earth elements or lithium or whatever. And so geologists, especially in the world of natural resources, spend an awful lot of time dealing with uncertainty because we don't actually know what's down there. And of course, that, that those skill sets, so be it from the analytical perspective, but also through the communication perspective as well, yeah. are exactly the same skills that you use in risk management. So that was something where I think it was whilst I was in Brazil and suddenly realized, oh, hang on a second, there is an existing methodology where you can bring together different people and get them to all air their perspectives and see what they think. I think that was the moment when I realized what risk management truly is. Previous to that, I'd had to do endless health and safety risk assessments and thought, oh, this is just a tick box exercise. And of course, I'm not going to jump out of the helicopter because I really have to or something like that. And so I think it was only when I had that aha moment of the power of risk management, especially in its integrated form, that I went right now, I get it. Previous to that, when I'd just been following the rules and obeying the health and safety tick boxes and everything like that, I thought, well, this is all a bit dull. But then yeah. that's just me as a as a human being. I know that it's not dull at all. It was just because I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um and and a few guests that I've spoken to in terms of sort of risk management of have like you say, they've no they've known what they've needed and they've discovered it, but not known that it was called risk management. And they've sort of just had this sort of eureka moment and um and pursued it in, in as that way. No, that's that's really interesting. Thanks, Sarah. Do you um do you miss working with rocks? Is that something that you uh that you, that you miss doing day to day? Well, I, I still I still actually get to do quite a lot of lot of work with the rocks. So, for example, <laughs> very very recently, well, I still am now um, trustee of a number of charities that have lots to do with geology and raw materials, and of course that in that entire side of things is increasing in importance and certainly scrutiny, very much so at the moment because yeah. we need all of those raw materials for the energy transition and everything um but um but also as well um i still get to lecture at various universities and often actually going into those geoscience departments or those technical departments and saying okay how can you make risk management useful for you and also when you then go into industry when you go into business how how can you communicate with people who perhaps are accountants or lawyers who have a very different technical background? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the rocks aren't aren't too far away. Um, right. The final thing, just to mention there as well, is that so I'm uh, I've spent the last year living up in Scotland on an old abandoned quarry actually, which we're gradually remediating. Um, so I'm currently speaking to you from an off grid pod um, in Scotland, which has solar panels and it's raining outside so if I disappear we'll blame it on renewable forms of energy because they didn't quite manage to <laughs> no worries so up, up in there uh, up in a big quarry it sounds like you'd be absolutely in your element whether or not there's a pun intended in there I'll let everybody else decide um, <laughs> but yeah no that's that's really interesting thanks Sarah and um and anybody who has had the pleasure to sit in on any of Sarah's webinars or, or listen to any of her content or lectures or whatever the case may be will will know how passionate she is about about this about this stuff. And that's obviously why, as you can probably tell from the title of the podcast, we're going to be discussing ESG and sustainability and the relationship relationship it has with risk management. 
So I guess just for the benefit of our listeners, Sarah, who, who may not be familiar with, with sort of any of your content or, or anything like that, or ESG at all, really, might have lived quite a sheltered life. Could you please just talk us through what ESG is? <laughs> so 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 yeah no so so if you're if you're listening to this and you don't know what ESG is by no means be ashamed do not worry okay so ESG just stands for environment social and governance and it's the the latest iteration of sustainability corporate social responsibility license to operate so all of those different terms and words and desires really boil down to the same thing um, and you'll hear many organizations now talking about how are they managing their ESG it's exactly the same as saying how are they managing their sustainability factors so it's it's the same stuff okay amazing so that obviously sounds really really interesting but what I guess in the context of risk management what does it have to do with with enterprise risk management as a, as a, as a broad term yeah, no, it's a really good question because um, I get asked a lot and my team get asked a lot. OK, so you're experts in enterprise risk management. Do you also do ESG, um, which which makes me quietly chuckle, um, but of course, in a very polite manner, because <laughs> actually, if you're if you're doing a true enterprise risk management, i.e. all of your different types of risks coming together, if you've been doing that without thinking or considering your ESG, then you haven't really been doing enterprise risk management. You've been missing a massive section of it. Um, so to start with, ESG is a really important component part of enterprise risk management. Yeah. Secondly, ESG is actually really difficult. And it's difficult because many aspects of it are incredibly difficult to quantify. And so as soon as you find it difficult to measure something or really put your finger on it, as we know, qualitative risk management is incredibly important, but it's so subjective. Often it's quite difficult to even if anything else, like persuade somebody else of its level of importance. Yeah. And so especially in the social space, there's there's an awful lot of subjectivity and um, everybody has a different perspective with regards to many of those risks that you find in that area. The final thing with regards to ESG that's really interesting is that um, a lot of the risks that um, you will normally be looking at within ESG, they are things that you're not necessarily going to see the impact of them right now. It's not like health and safety risk management, where an awful lot of those risks are right in your face. Actually, most of those risks are things that you are not going to see them come to fruition for many, many years. So think of all of your environmental risks like you know, things to do with climate change, etc. Okay, that's a case there where we can see all the leading indicators, but it's not necessarily going to go past those trigger points for a number of years or a number of decades, for example. So the key thing with regards to enterprise risk management is being really good at your horizon scanning and also your scenario analysis and saying, we know that this particular model is probably wrong, but making various assumptions and pulling various levers, what does this mean for the future? And so therefore, what do we absolutely have to be doing right now in order to be able to try and take control of some of those potential threats and opportunities? Yeah. So so ESG, it covers many different aspects with regards to that. And actually is a is almost a training ground for some really useful risk management tools that you can find elsewhere within enterprise risk management as well. Yeah. So in terms of the the long term or the long term risks, are, are things like climate change and, and all those sort of things, are they things you'd expect to see 
on risk registers? Are they, or <laughs> I, I suppose it's, I suppose it comes down to similar as, I guess, pandemic was on every risk register in, in the country as well. Yeah. And, and, and obviously I'm not sure how many companies took heed of it from, from my experience, the amount of ache it took for companies to sort of become agile and start working from home. I'd suggest not that many, but from my limited experience, obviously I've, I've only worked with a number of clients. I, I can't say I've seen climate change on there a great deal and stuff like that. Is that something that you'd expect to see? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see climate change as its own individual risk because it's more a it's more a theme or a driver of yeah. risk. I mean, being um, from a geologist's perspective and being fairly brutal about it, um, the changing climate is not a risk. It's always happened for four point five six billion years. Our climate has always changed. Yeah. The actual risk aspect is around okay, how could our changing climate impact on us as human beings? I mean, being very selfish about it. That's what we're really talking about here and. Of course, when it comes down to to the changing climate, um, the and it, it totally depends on what your organisation does and your context. Yeah, of course. So some organisations, actually, the risks might be very much in the opportunity space. So, for example, if you are um, a private equity or an investor or a bank or an insurer, um, many organisations to date will just have been thinking about climate change as how it might impact on you okay so if there's a typhoon in the pacific or something how might that impact on a supply chain or on people that you're investing in and that's been the kind of the traditional way of looking at it whereas actually it's much bigger than that because actually as an investor if you invest in the right companies or in the right way then you can influence how human beings impact on climate change and so this is something here where um climate change in itself i wouldn't necessarily expect to see that as a line item i'd expect to see the so what kind of bits much more and so therefore see those line items or those risks being articulated that way um the final thing as well obviously is that everything is interconnected and so that's something with regards to the risk register especially in the world of esg it's much easier if you view things as that relationship network rather than categories or silos or line items yeah. um, and and that obviously is, is the area of climate change is something where you'd expect a network rather than individual categories okay interesting interesting yeah i'll, I'll definitely be uh, keeping an eagle eye out for, for these sort of items then in future but yeah so just touching really back on the subjectivity thing that you mentioned a second ago then sarah so in terms of as we've already mentioned sustainability being a bit of a buzzword in inverted commas at the moment um, especially in recent times would you say that other words such as you know, responsible, ethical, economic, environmental, are they sort of all encompassed under the sustainability almost umbrella term or are they sort of standalone things that businesses should be considering? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is something here where if you don't already have some of those areas that you are considering, then sustainability is quite a good dumping ground <laughs> for, for all of those aspects. And that is something where actually that's one of the good reasons um, that um, using ESG 
can actually help you with that because the environment, the social and the governance unlock different kind of modes of inspiration when you're trying to identify and recognise those risks. So environment is all about how might the, the environment impact on you and who, how might you impact on it. Um, on the social side, it's the same thing again, but what you're bringing in there um, is sort of almost the other half of the sustainable development goals. So you're talking about human rights, you're talking about ethics, morality, all of those kind of things come in on that social side. Meanwhile, things like climate change, water, biodiversity, etc., all coming in on the environmental side. Yeah. Underpinning all of this is the governance bit. And this is where it gets really interesting because the governance bit is all about the culture of your company. And also when you say you're going to deliver on something, do you actually deliver on it? Or if you say you have various values that you want to adhere to, are they just out there? for investors or do you actually mean it do you deliver in terms of actions and so often if you're breaking this down you obviously you need all of the different risks that um, might be triggered by thinking about the e the s and the g so those should all come in but then also within the governance bit you should be looking for really good risk management within that organization so it's a little bit of kind of bubbles within bubbles yeah. going on there um, and so as a result you can get things like so from a governance perspective if you want to be a responsible organization the bit that holds you to account is generally the governance yeah does that governance just pertain to environment and social no of course it pertains to absolutely everything else as well so it acts as a nice sort of integrator as it were oh brilliant yeah no um i think that's sort of that was what i anticipated you're going to say in terms of sustainability sort of it's a good thing to sort of bung it all <laughs> all into and just mop it up with the uh, with the word sustainability <laughs> but no that's that's really interesting thanks sarah so i guess just in terms of a couple examples really so we've, we've touched on climate change um i guess from my perspective if someone was to sort of put a gun to my head and sort of say, where do you think this comes in risk management from a, an infrastructure perspective? I think sort of probably raw materials would be a big one. Would you mind just talking us through a couple of those examples and then any other, any other examples that you have in particular? Yeah, sure. So, so ESG risk management and raw materials is certainly where um, my kind of personal background, they certainly intersect. Um, and um, it's a space that we've been really lucky to do a lot of work in over oh, I mean, many, many years now. Um, and that's something there where, as I'm sure we're all acutely aware, as we try and move away from using non-renewable forms of power, so oil, gas, coal, etc., we're trying to move into that renewable space. So of course, it's been called the energy transition or the green revolution or the Green Deal or whatever else we want to use, depending on which jurisdictions we're talking about. Um, and in every case, we need to be able to build those wind turbines or those photovoltaic cells, etc., from materials. Now, our circular economy, which is all about um, recycling materials and reusing materials, is of course there, but there's a huge, there's a big, big deficit between the volume of materials that is either already in circulation slash might be available to be repurposed for something else, coupled with our technical ability to actually recycle these materials. At the moment, we are terrible at recycling, yeah. not because we don't want to, but because we haven't invented the technology or the methodologies to be able to allow us to do that yet. Plus, we don't design very much 
with recycling or repurposing in mind. So it's very, you know, most of the lithium batteries, and we have lithium batteries in our phones, in some cars and all of this kind of stuff, almost none of them are built to be recycled, which is well, which yeah. is criminal, because it means that we're going to end up with mountains of lithium batteries. I had no idea that was the case. <laughs> I assume all yeah. these like electric cars run off lithium batteries as well, which are yeah. like, revolutionising the world and making the, the world better, but what's happening to the yeah. batteries afterwards? Well, so, so this is it. So there are, there are many, many, many commodities where they might already be in circulation. They will come to, you know, that you know, washing machine or whatever will come to the end of its life at some point in time. And of course, at that point in time, we need to get better at rather than just chucking all of this stuff into a waste pile or shipping it off to another country to deal with. These things here are massive resources for us, which we can actually use. So you've got the sort of the circular economy bit that can be improved on dramatically. And there's some absolutely excellent research that's going on around the world with regards to this. But the problem with that is it the fact we're very much at the blue sky research stage for a lot of this, which means we are at least a decade away from some of this research becoming useful or a reality, as it were. And so therefore, in the meantime, we need to be able to extract these materials from their raw component form, as it were, so i.e. out of the ground. But also with all of this, our population continues to grow. Um, The world's population continues to develop. And so more and more people want a mobile phone or whatever the case might be. And also technology is getting increasingly more complicated. And so therefore the variety of minerals and metals that we need is getting more diverse. So what does this mean? It means that we constantly need to be going back to the the rocks beneath our feet and almost harvesting the component parts, i.e. the different elements, et cetera, that we need from them. And so what does this mean? It means that we need to continue mining. And I know that there are a number of NGOs, et cetera, out there who who really don't like mining. And that is because mining has been done incredibly badly in the past. And there are many films, there are many books, there are many real life examples where we look at that and think, oh, well, that wasn't very good, was it? Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't very responsible. Um, but then that then takes us into the space of saying, right, well, we have to mine. Okay, we cannot get around this. We have to be able to extract this material from the ground if we want to be able, if we want to actually continue to have 7.5 billion people on the planet. Okay, we've got too many people to live in a self, you know, kind of in a way without having all of those materials. Um, So if we want to be able to do that, how do we do it? So that then comes into how do we make sure that we extract these raw materials in the most responsible manner possible, knowing that when we're looking at that, we're going to have to make trade-offs with regards to what responsibility really means and how we boost all of that. Yeah. And so therefore, that's where the risk management comes in, because as soon as you start beginning to balance opportunities and threats that are posed and also understanding where are those hard lines or those maximum tolerance points with regards to all of this yeah that is the risk management with regards to responsible raw materials um and so i've had the luxury of working with all kinds of both mining companies but then also investors insurers customers so people who need to buy the cobalt or whatever it is to say right what does a responsible mining operation look like how do you measure it 
either by doing that in person or using remote methods like using satellites, et cetera, to take a look at what's going on on the ground. And so therefore ensuring that where mining companies, for example, are extracting this material from the ground, processing it and then selling it, that bit is done responsibly. But then also downstream of that, where those raw materials then get converted into things like batteries, et cetera, that part of the value chain is also done responsibly as well. And all the way through, you are making trade-offs, but then also all the way through, you need to know where are those hard lines where you say, okay, actually, if child labor has been used at any point in time in this value chain, then actually somebody should stop it somewhere. And usually it's someone who's a little bit, you know, sub further down. So the, the people who have the power are the purchasers because they can say, we don't need to buy it from you. Yeah. So how do you therefore make that information get to those people? If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense, Sarah. It, I think some of the stuff you mentioned there is really quite sobering, really. And um, I guess in terms of the how companies act res- responsibly um, with sustainability in terms of sort of mining and, um, and like you say, even exploitation for human rights and stuff, what sort of deterrent is or are the, are the deterrents in place to make people and, and sorry, make organizations act more responsibly? Because I know a lot of times I did, um, I did law at university and learning about company law and stuff. A lot of times the countries where um, these companies are going into mine and stuff like that, the companies are probably have more wealth than the company, the country they're going into to exploit. Yeah. So a lot of the time there's not much they can do about it. I mean, I suppose my question is, is the deterrence in place or, on the flip side of the coin, is there sort of encouragements in place to act more responsibly or um, or is it sort of at the detriment of the com- countries they go into? Yeah, no, this is, a, this is a really, really good question. And I think this is where ESG and that sort of that risk management of those different factors is absolutely front and centre. Um, so, for example, if you are a company that is registered in the UK or in the US or, or in Australia or somewhere like that, you will be beholden to the laws of that particular land. So in the UK, we've got really, really good um, bribery and corruption laws, um, things like modern human slavery. So therefore going back into those supply chains and looking for um, if there are any instances of human rights abuse, etc. But what that means is it means that, okay, so say, for example, you are um, a mining company and, and for example, approximately 60% of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, cobalt is increasingly important because it is a vital element effectively that we need inside those lithium batteries okay so otherwise so the lithium batteries aren't they're not just composed of lithium they're composed of all kinds of different materials that come together and one of those key component parts is cobalt another one for example might be graphite or something like that but 60 percent of the world's cobalt comes from the democratic republic of congo and the reason for that is the geology so that's something that we cannot change we can't change where those rocks have naturally been concentrated. Um, Now, the Democratic Republic of Congo is an absolutely phenomenal country. And actually, the last place that I went traveling to before we all went into lockdown was was the DRC. Um, And yeah, so it's absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. So it's an amazing place. But as a country, if you look at any of the sort of country risk maps of the world, it is invariably red or a very dark shade of amber. Um, And that perhaps is because of the level of um, uncertainty, shall we say, with regards to things like governance, etc. 
um, conflict and whatever that you might have there. Yeah. Um, and so, so therefore, with regards to all of this, you need to, if you decide, right, I'm a, I'm a British company, so I'm therefore beholden by UK law. I want to go and I want to mine cobalt, okay? A relatively easy part of the world from a geological perspective would be the DRC. However, you know from a governance perspective, that's going to be really difficult, okay, potentially in some aspects to be able to do that and still stay in line with UK law. Yeah. But then when you go to something like the social context, with regards to many parts of the world, they need technology and expertise to help unlock that mineral wealth. And so therefore, there are positives there on the social side, as well as potential negatives. So therefore, you might have altercation between large scale mining and small or artisanal scale mining, which there's lots um, in the DRC. Um, and then finally, of course, it then comes back again into the governance bits. So as a mining company working in the DRC, you're going to, of course, be paying tax and royalties, etc. But who are you paying them to? And is that money getting to the right people? within that country so all of this is so intertwined that's where things like scenario analysis network analysis etc is really really important when you're saying right as a mining company or in raw materials um how do i make the decision whether to go and mine in the drc or not or should i instead go and invest in new technology and go and look for cobalt in portugal for yeah. example which might be a better or an easier jurisdiction to work in with regards to that governance perspective yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, again, makes perfect sense. Thanks, Sarah. It's um, like I say, I think I've mentioned a couple of times when we sort of were preparing for the episode. I find this stuff absolutely fascinating and um, <laughs> and uh, and equally infuriating as well in in some aspects. The way that sustainability, I suppose, at the moment, it's like you say, is a there's a lot more responsibility on on companies to act well responsible really but um sort of the the history of it is jaded to say the least um <laughs> but um but yeah so obviously from a sustainability perspective as we've mentioned a couple of times it does really seem to be capturing the interest of of lots of younger people and and people who might be wanting to change their career to sort of mm-hmm. pursue this this sort of line of work i mean what does that mean for um for risk managers and risk professionals yeah, so I think that the um, the really exciting thing for risk management is that it is actually the key through which you can get sustainability to be a reality. Because, of course, with risk management, you're always looking for those potential threats and opportunities and then saying, right, what are we going to do about them? Yeah. <laughs> so actually, let's create action. Let's create change. Um, and sustainability is something which is very easy just to talk about and not actually to do anything about it. Um, also as well there's lots and lots of um, new regulation and standards and guidance for example that's emerged over the last few years which is great but a lot of it is quite tick boxy yeah okay rather than actually focusing in on on real controls or real change and so that's something where if you are if you're interested in sustainability and you want to know, okay, how can I actually make this real rather than just greenwashing, then risk management is a really cunning way to go because that's all about holding people to account and actually trying to drive change whilst being cognizant of the fact that there's loads of stuff that we don't know here. Yeah. So you're always taking a chance in terms of, of trying to plan those directions. So uh, for, for me personally, um, and I've always been very, 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 
interested in sustainability um and weirdly i'd always thought okay no i don't want to go into oil and gas because that's just evil it's of course not evil or anything like that so why on earth did i end up in mining that's a really good question i think it's just because i liked camping (laughs) 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 being brutally honest about it but it was always very front and center of my mind to say how can we do this better Um, and everything that you can learn from one industry or one segment can be translated into any other segment on earth in terms of right you've got something that's fairly fluffy which is sustainability many aspects of it are a little bit difficult to pin down so therefore there is uncertainty involved so therefore risk management is a really key tool in getting people to understand how do you push forwards with it there's one final thing in there as well and I think I've mentioned a little bit of it already is that sustainability is full of conflicts as in you if all we concentrated on was uh, eliminating the pumping of carbon into our atmosphere so if all we concentrated on was on carbon we would kill the planet okay well, we certainly kill the human species because yeah. that is way too narrow in terms of thinking about the breadth of sustainability and so that's something again in terms of the ability to trade off different aspects of sustainability against one another and say what is the most responsible or the most sensible way forwards that's a case there where risk management applies that logic and so therefore you can say okay so what are the correct targets we should be going for with regards to carbon or water or biodiversity or humans or you know whatever the case might be yeah no again that's that's really interesting for i think i included in terms of sustainability i think the first thing you think about is is climate change and and emissions and stuff like that isn't it but it's that's just literally one one piece of the, <laughs> of the puzzle um so in terms of sort of sustainability risk management then do you think that's something that companies take seriously do you think they feel empowered to do it or is it a case of oh god everyone else is doing it so i guess we're going to have to say that we're doing it as well but not really be fully invested into it um i'd love to say that all companies feel empowered to do it and it wasn't because they've got an arm twisted behind their back being told they have to do it now but of course it's the for for many companies it's the second one yeah um there are numerous companies out there who are really good at sustainability and but and what's coming through now is they're beginning to be rewarded for that Um, and we saw that coming you know through you know so obviously we're still in covid at the moment but um there was much speculation just over a year ago where people were saying oh well you know everyone's now going to be concentrating on covid and um recession okay so we're going to be concentrating on getting our economy back up and running again around the world so therefore death to sustainability because no one's going to care about that anymore yeah but then what we found was that those companies who actually have very much taken sustainability to heart and really deliver on those principles they turned out to be more resilient with regards to covid and that's not necessarily because they were really good at business continuity management or anything like that i think it was more than that i think it came down to the culture of those organizations so sustainability and an organization's culture go hand in hand with regards to this so you've got some organizations that you will see them accelerate ahead of the rest of everybody else because they've been doing this for a long time they know what it means to them you've then got the bulk 
of organizations who are then going okay well actually you know we have to you know we have to adhere to certain regulations so lots of financial organizations are talking about um tcfd so carbon disclosure effectively and what on earth does that mean for yeah. them so they're having to do that and then of course as soon as you get the money people needing to report on something that then cascades into everybody who they are investing in etc so that's a really good route in to all of that and then we will and of course we're going to have the government coming through or governments around the world coming through with other policies requirements as well so do people do it because they want to do it no not necessarily and the reason for that i think is because the financial value has never really been there and yeah. so therefore if you've had to go through cuts quite a lot of the stuff that's been cut has been quietly has been the sustainability stuff whereas now we're seeing that financial value, the, the legal requirements that are coming through, together with underlying all of that, the culture of organisations. And, I mean, let's face it, so the, the kind of the oldest millennials are now 40 years old. And it's the millennials who theoretically have been the problem children in all of this because millennials take sustainability seriously and invest that way. Well, hang on a second. If the oldest millennials are now 40... That means that millennials are pretty powerful in terms of where they sit in organizations and where they invest their money, for example, and how they live their lives. So you've also got this societal demand for sustainability coming through. So all of this package together actually makes this more real than it's ever been. Is it locked in yet? No, not yet, because we've still got many companies and billions of people around the world who aren't quite there yet but hey we're never going to get everybody there all in one go and actually those nations and those companies who have the opportunity to get there faster there's nothing stopping them from just getting on and doing it yeah definitely I think from um sort of societal pressure as you mentioned earlier I think just thinking about it then you find a lot of the sort of advertising campaigns sustainability is at the forefront of a lot of what businesses that are doing now it's it's almost yeah. like it not necessarily a usp but it's i can think of a lot of people just off the top of my head i know would stop shopping somewhere if they weren't if it came out they didn't act sustainably but then i suppose on the flip side of the coin is it is perception better than reality or are they like you say are they really doing it yeah and and this is where again risk management can come in because a lot of what we do in risk management of course is actually kind of monitoring or measuring what's really there and what's changing yeah and so again it is very easy for someone to make a poster or whatever and say hey we're really we're really responsible we're really sustainable etc um but then you need to start scratching beneath that and of course that's where as risk managers we can come in and say oh okay well that's really exciting that you've you've teed up that vision now let's look about delivering on it and what does reality really look like whilst trying to achieve those goals there as well so yeah i think that you know risk management ideally should be a tool that's the antithesis to greenwashing yeah. of which there has been a lot over the last few years <laughs> <laughs> certainly certainly so what do you think so we can do as a profession to really help i know you've just touched on it slightly there to to sort of really help organizations and the clients that we support sort of address this so that we can sort of get people thinking more positively about esg and sustainability and i know you just touched on a couple of points there but is there anything that you'd expand on from that perspective that's worked particularly well in your experience 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, well, number one, make sure that when you are doing your enterprise risk management, you're including environment, social and governance in that portfolio of risks. But then secondly, with that, make sure you're not just looking at those from an internal and then separately an external perspective. Actually, what you're looking at is your impact on the world and then the world's impact on you. So it's a slightly different way of doing that compared to perhaps some of the more traditional methods. Um, so I think that's that's sort of number one. Number two, looking at things from a on a relationship basis or that sort of networked basis. Yeah. Um, and that's a case there where there is nothing wrong with having climate change listed on your risk register, provided you then link it out into, well, what does that actually mean for you? Um, if you just have a risk that says climate change, Great. So what? <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Um, so I think there's also then it's it's our responsibility to actually make it meaningful and tangible for people throughout the organisation. And then finally with that as well. So there are many people within environment, social governance, and of course, finance and law and everything else who are experts in risk management in their own right, but they've been taught how to do risk management in their own space. And so, for example, an environmental expert, when they talk about risks, they talk about um, sources, pathways and receptors. So that's the language that they use, which is totally different to what say a financial expert uses they don't they don't use that language at all yeah. um, similarly like a health and safety expert will talk about hazards um, social experts will talk about materiality assessments and a social materiality assessment is very different to a financial materiality assessment I mean it still means the same kind of thing like what's what's important so that's something there where again as that enterprise risk manager you sit in the middle of all of this and so therefore almost acting as that translator but also having huge empathy for those different experts in their disciplines and rather than forcing your language and terminology down their throats actually saying no you just keep speaking at me keep feeding us information and then I can go okay right so I think I get that right financial person this is what I think they're actually meaning. So there's a huge amount of empathy and also translation that is needed if you're going to integrate even just ESG. Those three disciplines don't work together. Yeah. Invariably, they're in very different parts of an organization. So they need to be integrated and then they need to also be integrated into the whole so you can have your full risk profile of the organization rather than just individual silos. Yeah. Silos don't work. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I did a podcast uh, recently where we were speaking about silos and um, just a massive thumbs down over them <laughs> in terms of risk <laughs> management. But yeah, I, I just touching on the point you made earlier, being the translator, I think one of uh, one of the earliest lessons I learned is when I started my career is I was doing a lot of hypothetical sort of situations and, uh, and experiences to sort of try and implement that into my training and I was always quite worried about hearing all this nuclear jargon and trying to get like trying to like it's not my job to understand that it's my job to be told it dumb it down and tell it to the people in, in like the most primitive way possible um, yeah or, or work out what's important and also what's going to make that decision maker interested like you know the, the so what I think that is crucially important. So again, coming back to climate change. So our climate's changing. So what? <laughs> exactly. know, what does that mean? How do you actually get a decision maker or someone who can create change to actually care? Um, and that's kind of a lot about what we're doing. Um, the, the final thing I would mention here, and this is getting really nitty gritty, um, but I think one thing that 
is really important is don't rely on the traditional methods that we might use within risk management. So using likelihood is really problematic in many aspects of ESG because it's incredibly difficult to robustly put a likelihood on lots of these risks. Um, and so as a result, they, they suffer the same fates that COVID did. And so they languish off in that certain corner of an impact likelihood matrix yeah. and then get forgotten about or put to one side. So actually what you see in a lot of ESG risk management is you get rid of likelihoods. Okay, or you, you don't get rid of it, you just put it to one side and you don't use it as one of those primary prioritization mechanisms. You use a variety of other tools to help you do that. Cool. So very last question for me, Sarah. I think I'd be really interested to hear your, your thoughts on this. So um, I suppose sustainability does appear on risk registers, as we've mentioned, but often as a threat. Um, so it's indicative of people fearing the unknown. Um, people are wary of it. They resist it. How do you think we could flip this on its head into a positive and, and really change this perception of sustainability into an opportunity as opposed to a threat? I mean, what, what advice would you give to people listening who, who may have encountered that? Oh, yeah. And I think that's a really, really good, a really good question. So, again, we've worked with a number of big uh, private equity investors and banks, etc., who are actively looking for the upside in sustainability. Um, and, and that's because, of course, it's the same as health and safety. So if you're just managing it as a threat, you're trying to manage to zero. Um, but also all of these things are very long term. So you actually need to be planning for the long term. And there's there's very little, you know, you're missing out so much if you don't look for the opportunities that sit there. So with all aspects of sustainability, if you make the decision, so going back to one of the examples we had earlier on, if you make the decision, okay, no, we want to go and mine cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo, yeah. you can then say, okay, right, so we know that there are some threats here. Why were there opportunities with regards to working with those local communities, working with local government to help take them to the next level, make sure that facilities are provided, investment is made, in the right way the environment is actually not just protected but perhaps enhanced for the future things are cleaned up etc we can actually do that proactive modeling and, and monitoring etc for the future so this is something here where again I mean, you know, our definition for risk management is the effect of uncertainty on our objectives, be those effects positive or negative. Um, and this is one of those areas where you absolutely have to go looking for the positives. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on a huge amount of the value that comes with the management of these risks. So much so that you will often just think, oh, well, we don't need to do that because the value add by only managing the threat is tiny. Yeah. The value add for sustainability or ESG comes through managing the upside and realizing even just a fraction of some of those opportunities that come with it. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think you see a lot of these things on LinkedIn of, of companies doing really amazing things and initiatives in, um, I, don't, I don't want to say developing countries. I don't, I don't know if the Democratic Republic of the Congo is, uh, is, is um, considered a, a developing country, but like you say, you see these companies doing this stuff and the, just the perception of them just changes so much for the positive and, and like you say, what an opportunity to, to be able to, to exploit that, not just for perception purposes, but because you actually want to make a difference 
yeah no exactly and I think yeah it can be anything from you know kind of enhancing your reputation and your brand and and it doesn't matter where in the world you're you're doing all of this every single one of us can make a difference and at all times we need to be making those trade-offs between those potential threats and opportunities that, that we might be managing here um and yes so you've got that big reputation bit but it's so much more than someone's perception of you anybody can put together a report that has picture of children by a well or something like that and that's great but actually the real value comes through saying okay hang on a second what is our space in the world and where are we going as an organization right where, what's the opportunity we can bring to the table here where's the influence that we can bear and that's where ESG the sustainability part really comes into that risk management where you can say cool let's go for it let's make a real difference and, and make the world a better place 100% 100% couldn't agree more well it's been absolutely fascinating Sarah like I say I, I, I find this stuff really really interesting and um, and speaking to yourself who's obviously so passionate about it is um, has been been absolutely um, been absolutely amazing so last question from me so just in terms of advice you would give yourself so this is a question sorry it's a bit cliche but I ask all my guests who come on if they could for the benefit of of newcomers to the industry if they could give themselves one piece of advice that they know now that they've gathered over the career uh, what what that what would that piece of advice be um I think my piece of advice would be to listen very 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 hard to everything going on right about you and develop your levels of empathy that you have for those individuals that are trying to give you information because all information is useful information it might not necessarily align with the story that you have in your head or that picture but all of it is incredibly useful and can be assimilated somewhere so I think that piece of advice would be listen have empathy for everybody and remember as a risk manager you're actually a service provider um and so you're there to cater for them and at the end of the day if those individuals think that whatever comes out of your work that you're doing with them if they think it was all their idea great let them have it yeah because then it's going to make a real difference <laughs> love it love it amazing thanks for that sarah so just very last point from me so if anybody listening to this has got any questions or would like to sort of get in touch with you to to discuss what we've been talking about today what would be the best routes to get in touch yeah, so the, the best route is through our website, um, which is www.satala.com. So, so if you just go on there, um, you'll be able to get in contact with us directly. And also there's a whole series of blogs and articles and fact sheets and everything that are free to download. So we believe very much in, in making things as accessible as possible. Um, so feel free to go on there um, and give us your feedback as well. We'd love to hear it. Well, I'll be heading straight there after this, definitely. Well, listen, Sarah, thanks so, so, so much for, uh, for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. And, and yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Patrick. You no doing worries, great Sarah. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, be sure to follow Optimize on all of our social media channels where you can subscribe to this podcast and be notified of every episode so you don't miss a thing. Please like, share and leave reviews to help support us and increase our reach within the wider risk community. And join us next time where we'll be chatting with another leading figure in the world of risk. Until then, thanks a lot for listening and take it easy.